0: Welcome, everybody, to episode 37 of the Beyond Red and Blue Podcast. I'm your host, Bo Richards, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Dan Humphrey. How are you doing, Dan? Hello, hello, hello. I'm doing well, Bo, How are you doing? Not too bad. I'm actually a little tired, but uh, so we'll see how long I can last today. But I'm not, other than that, I'm right, not too enough. bad. Hopefully, it's for a good reason, getting some good training in. Yeah. So I started grappling with uh, two guys from our gym at uh, 7 a.m. in the mornings.
1: Oop. And, that's just uh, stupid early man
0: yeah it, it's ah. it's been good but afterwards i'm just exhausted and i usually go in it up going pretty light but um it's uh it's a mental test for me to because i'm really trying to focus on what it is i want to do yeah so like every round that i'm going i'm putting myself in certain positions and then trying to do certain things and so Um, it's just, it's constantly trying to figure out, okay, is my framing correct? So I'm trying to, I'm working on escapes from the bottom of mount into, um, this week it's into half guard or into butterfly guard, or if a position, if a submission presents itself, I will attack a submission. Um, Right on.
1: Now, are you, are you guys doing, uh, like specific positional sparring or just kind of rolling and you're taking it on yourself to
0: (laughs) get yourself mounted and then escape it? Um. So I'm doing the positional sparring. So when I'm rolling with either of them, I'm on the bottom, and then I tell them exactly what it is I'm doing before the whole thing starts, so that they know when I'm going to stop. And um, and then when they grapple, they just do whatever they want. Okay. And so I, basically, what I tell them like this week is, I was like, okay, I'm going to be in the bottom amount again. You can do whatever you want. You can submit me. Like you can try out to get off. Like I don't care. Um, but I'm going to try and escape. And then instead of stopping like I did last week, I would just escape and then reset. It's like I'm going to take it a step further and I'm going to try to get to half guard or butterfly guard, which are the two guards that in particular that I want to start to focus on when it comes to my guards because I don't really focus on guard play a lot. And so those two seemed fine enough to start with. And um, I'm going to get to a dominant position with those, whether that's into a sweep and like actively doing a sweep in one of those guards or into a position where i have you know say half guard i have control of the leg and i can easily hip heist up and stand up if i want to versus getting you know if i get half guard but one of them has me in you know in a front headlock like a headlock or something like that's not really dominant for me i'm just trying to stave off a dars or something, you know, like I, I want to, yeah. or if, you know, I get it, I get the lockdown, but like I'm on my flat on my back and they're cross facing me. It's like, I, did I really get half guard and I'm in a good position? It's like, no, I, I'm trying to get to a position where I'm stable. I have good posture, base structure and all that. And yeah. I have, I'm engaging in the guard. Um, or in a couple of cases, uh, um, one of the guys uh, kept putting his, he- his head down when I'd get out And so like, I'd push him away, usually in butterfly guard and, you know, I'd lift him and push him back to create space. And as that would happen, he would duck his head. So I would snap a guillotine and just continue until he got out of the guillotine or I finished him and then reset Um, just as a way to be more deliberate. So like by the time I'm done, like I'm mentally just exhausted. Good. Yeah. No, I I, I love it. It, It's, it's interesting. Like, I think that, (laughs) people go in, they roll, and it's like free rolling, you know, you do whatever you want to do, and then you're physically exhausted, and you're trying to pick small things up, and you feel like you're getting better, and all that stuff. But there's, I'm already noticing a difference between doing that, and then only trying to focus on, like, three things. And then I'm only doing those three things when I grapple. And then, like, last week, I was just escaping the bottom of mount. So I did, like, the trap and the roll and like, a frame hip escape. That was all I was doing, pretty much. And... And then Sean, who we've had on the podcast is like, you need to do other things. Like you have a thousand holes in your game, like fix all these problems. And I'm slightly exaggerating. So he's going to listen to this and, and feel bad. (laughs) Don't feel bad, Sean. I love it. But he's like, you're making this mistake and this mistake and this mistake. You need, you need to, you need to get to a guard. Like you need to figure out guard. You need to engage. I was like, okay. So I was a little overwhelmed and I was like, that's too much. Like I can't just add like the more, more stuff I add, the more harder, the harder it's going to get to do it all. And so I'm like trying to do this slowly. So I don't add too many things. And then I, I'm just like overwhelmed. And at this point I might as well just free roll and learn nothing. So I was like, well, I'll stick with getting to the guard position. I'm going to do that for the week, maybe even next week. And then just sort of slowly add on different layers. Cause as I do, as you do this kind of stuff more and you get used to thinking through it, you can add (coughs) more things just naturally. It's It's how we learn. And so, um, I want to make sure I'm consistently challenging myself, which Sean in particular is really good at doing that because he's like, hey, here's seven problems. Here's how you fix them. And it's like, well, can I fix all seven at once? Maybe that might be overwhelming. I'll try five. And then Sean will be like, well, here's seven more things. <laughs> what, dude,
1: I think that actually makes a great fucking example of one of the the challenges for doing deliberate practice. Yes. Basically, exactly what you're running into because you're always oh I gotta fix this I gotta fix this I gotta fix all these things, um, but the most effective, the 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 stats show us evidence points to the most effective is to pick one at a time, stick with it for a while until it's fixed, yep. and then it's fixed, and you can move on to the next one. Otherwise, we try and fix everything at the same time, you fix nothing.
0: Yep, and I think uh, <clears throat> I need to read more on this, but I've also heard so that the especially as you get proficient at things, the ideal number of things to learn is three things at once that are separate. Okay. Um, okay. and then you pick small things like one thing at a time from those to, to learn. So you're not, cause let's say you learn three different subjects and then you pick three things to learn from each subject. Now you're learning nine things. Right. And so, um, you want to oscillate between the things Spend a little bit of time on each, but not all at the same time. And then learn small things from them and slowly grow. Um, I think an example that I read somewhere was that uh, if you want to study for a test, you don't want to, uh, let's say you have finals coming up and you have multiple finals. You don't want to study for (coughs) everything the week before and like cram for it. That actually doesn't work. What you want to do is two weeks or three weeks before the test, you want to study for a whole week, let's say, on one subject, and then the next week on the next subject, and then come back and revisit both in like a recap week before the final. Yeah. So you can learn it, forget about it, and then recall it. Yes. And then you can break that down into smaller bits. Like with jujitsu, especially as you get more advanced, um, you can actually do that on like a micro level. Like you, you could do that in between rounds, like do a ten, five minute, 10 minute round and have one specific focus. Like you need to focus on whatever this is. And then you do that in the round. And then on your break, rest round, you take a look, let's say at the film, if you film yourself and say, okay, I got this figured out, let's move on to the next thing. And then you can micro adjust and go back. Like people can actively do that. It it would be hard, but um, I think with advanced students, we were talking, I think last week, or the week before about, uh, um, working on like the minutiae of movements, you know, how the, the technical, the, the super deep technical aspects of how to make things work stuff that white belts should not even worry about. Yeah. Right. That's the kind of stuff you can spend <clears throat> a week on and then move on. You don't need to spend six months on that problem because you'll get bored because you'll get bored. <laughs> yeah. Right. And, um, so you want to you can move on quicker, whereas like you could spend six months on open guard for a white belt and probably keep it entertaining. Mostly because open guard is like 30 guards and it depends on the one you want to use. You know, it Oh yeah. Well, I mean you look at like Matt Thornton, he's famous for he'll do a
1: year on mount. Yeah. Full year. That's all they ever talk about is mount. Sure. But as you dig in, there, you know, A, there's plenty of nuance to all the positions involved with mount Mm -hmm. uh, and also by um, being specific and focused on that one thing, you're actually gonna learn it versus the shotgun approach that is kind of more standard.
0: One of the ways I'd heard uh, someone talk about teaching um, in just like regular schools is, um, I forget what they called it, but the essential notion that they use music as an example. And so it was like an integrative approach where you go into the music program and you don't just learn how to read music for your instrument you learn about the mathematical notations and how it was developed so you learn the history of music and you learn how they came about what they did so you learn the semantics and the language of music and how it translates you learn um, the different types of uh, music across culture you learn the different timings and how they're developed and how they relate to other instruments Um, all the way up into how to build symphonies all this stuff and so by the end of this immersive music curriculum you're actually learning all of the how to do all of like the scientific method you're you're learning math you're learning engineering you're learning physics you're learning english um, if english is your preferred language like you're actually doing all of the stuff that you would learn in a regular school with a focus on music and i think there's some merit to uh, i don't know if this is exactly how matt thornton does his classes i imagine if he spends a year on mount this is what he does it's like this is how mount works in relation to everything else because there's only so much you can teach for the person on bottom in mount if the person on top doesn't know what to do and vice versa and what if they go to neon belly and then how does that relate to mount does that make sense and so you you can kind of get small and then make it bigger um, and include different things and um, there's something to be said i think for that approach where it's like we're going to learn about mount for a year six months whatever but today's version of mount is how to choke somebody not how to get out of mount right Right. yeah
1: no exactly yeah that's what i'm saying like just that the the concept of mount as you dig in has so many aspects to it
0: right exactly and then a lot of time there and you could even i mean you can really extrapolate and say okay today we're going to talk about inversion you know what does it mean to invert a movement not necessarily like to actually be inverted yourself like upside down but um and then if you did mount you'd be like well the guard is really just inverted mount Mm
1: -hmm.
0: so how, how how does things change when gravity is shifted Because gravity is vastly different um, in that case, because you're above the hips versus underneath of them, and so how how the body moves is a little bit different. But otherwise, one of you's on your back and one of you's on your knees, facing straight up. Like there's a lot of similarities, and so um, you know, I that I'd be curious to kind of break that down um, and kind of see how Matt Thornton does that. Because I like said, I imagine that's how he does it. It uh, it seems in to keep in fitting with. uh, With that sort of practice and from what i understand he's very big on um pedagogy on teaching properly yes yeah absolutely i don't know if he
1: actually went to school for philosophy um, but he talks about philosophy a lot and all of his teaching is somewhat within that context um, of, of, of how it all relates to each other. None of it is we do it because this is the way we've always done it or tradition or any of that mess. Yeah. It's all very logical, all very scientific, uh, which is one of the things I appreciate about Thornton a lot uh, is is his approach to teaching. Yeah, no, It just makes sense.
0: No, it does. And I, I like the, like I'm the kind of person where I can do a deep dive into something and not get bored with it. I'm not ex- like I'll get exhausted. I can't do it forever. Some people can just do it and that's just what they do. But like if you were to show me the finer, if you were to say we're gonna do mount or side control or guard or whatever for six months, I wouldn't get bored. Because there's so much there's there there's yeah. so you know, like I had a kid yesterday in one of the classes um was like, This isn't fun, I'm bored. And it took me by surprise actually because I was showing a hip frame escape from the bottom of mount into what is essentially half guard. And then from there, I was going to show them how to hip heist up and either push their buddy over or get him into a front headlock. I was like, that's super fascinating to me. Like, There's a lot of movement there. Um, I like being able to move somebody's weight and come up, get into half guard, um, cause it's not my, I'm not really familiar with it, but I like playing around there and figuring that out. And then hip heisting up onto my knee so I'm more mobile. And then, you know, tackling my buddy or doing the knee cut pass or just pulling their head into my arm and guillotining them. I'm like, this is really fun for me. And one of the kids was like, I don't like this position. I don't want this is I'm bored. I don't like this. This Isn't fun. And I'm like, you've never been in this position in your life. You're seven, <laughs> and so I. She was like, she was a little. I think she was a little fussy, and um, she needed a nap. But she, I asked her about it. She like started to cry a little bit. <laughs> So I successfully, yeah. <laughs> I showed, I showed half guard to like, a, to my youth class and they, one of them cried. So I don't know what that says about my teaching ability <laughs> or about the utility of half guard, but she really did not like half guard. And,
1: Emotions are a bitch when you're seven, man. Yeah. And her, her older <laughs> sister
0: is one of my assistant instructors and um, she was like, tear it up. And so I, her, her sister's like, you know, what, uh, you know, what's wrong? And I was like, oh, she doesn't like half guard. <laughs> you know like what the fuck and so she's like asking her all these questions like why don't you like it can you vocalize your feelings can you tell me how you can you use words because she wasn't able to explain it and she just said the same thing she told me when i asked those questions was i don't know i just don't like it and then she like started to cry and i was like okay i guess i guess we're gonna do the trap and roll again like (laughs) i think it was hard because it's not easy to like hit frame escape out of mount and then well because it wasn't really hip frame escape totally like i was doing a partial um elbow escape and that's not easy to do elbow escapes are actually really hard and um you know so you trap the leg and then you got to turn your body all the way over the other side Mm
1: -hmm.
0: and then from there you're roughly in half guard and then from there just a a maneuver you know get the underhook and come up to your side and then post up on the hand hip heist your bottom like all those kinds i was going to go through some of that and she just like wasn't having the movement i think it was just difficult for her and she like didn't like the fact that she was smashed on the ground and couldn't move
1: yeah
0: and i'm like no god damn it <laughs> <laughs> it's tough to be seven
1: what can you say
0: yeah it's like tomorrow yeah. <laughs> tomorrow i'm just gonna go into class where i'm gonna do jiu-jitsu i'm just gonna set up like an obstacle course with a bunch of cones and shit and let them run around and be like this "Is this fun <laughs> like because this is what half guard is like jump over that cone like (laughs) but uh but yeah Yeah, yeah. i do like the teaching pedagogy aspect of it it's interesting to try and um try and figure those problems out like i like i said i it took me by surprise and i was like this is fun for me so why isn't the seven-year-old entertained
1: Well, you know, that that brings up a good point and something I've been pondering while you and I have been uh, exploring the different accelerated learning techniques, deliberate practice and such. And the one thing that I have yet to find a way to teach is curiosity. You Mm -hmm. either have it or you don't, to the best of my knowledge. uh, I believe you're a very curious person. I know I'm a very curious person, love to learn stuff. So that part's automatic. But if someone isn't curious in the first place, then what? Yeah, you know, um, and and without that, because it's it's push versus pull, you know, it's either pulling a string or trying to push a string. And one way works a hell of a lot better than the other. And if you're gonna try and push information into someone's brain who's not curious about it, yeah, it's not gonna get very far. Um, so I, I think that's one of those inherent requirements that you have to show up with. And if you don't have it, then to some extent, you know, depending on your other outside motivation, you might just be screwed.
0: Yeah. You know, that's interesting. was, I think that jujitsu, at least for the adult programs, it's hard to say with kids. Um, right. But with, with adults, I think that jujitsu attracts naturally curious individuals.
1: Yes, I agree.
0: Um, now, <sighs> I mean, you, you, you. In this case, I, I wouldn't say it's synonymous with intelligence, but because um, you get a lot of really smart. Like, wh- what's the joke? Is that jujitsu? You have your um, the meatheads who smash everybody, and then you have what jujitsu actually is, which is a bunch of dorks. Yep. Who like who are just so fascinated by how the body moves that they're that they're willing to like train how to murder each other to figure it out. You know, like it's just a bunch of nerds, and yeah. and that's actually been more my experiences than most of the people. You know, outside of being like middle-aged dads or just a bunch of nerds who are like, this is really curious. Like, I wonder what happens if I turn upside down and like try and do this thing, you know, in a weird position. It's like, why doesn't it work? Um, I think kids are naturally curious to an extent because everything's new for them. And right. I think that's partly why they like play. They like to rough rough and tumble play because they're like, what's going to happen next? I might die or I might live. I don't know. Because that's like a big part of it with kids is like it's the fear of like, they just don't know if they're gonna get hurt, but they're not quite yet old enough to understand like what it means to be hurt. Like truly, yeah. you know? And so like kids will run into stuff and like fall over and get hurt and then forget about it a second later. And then yeah. they have like no fear of doing that again. You know, there's very few things that like take that, that that, that fear stays ingrained. Like burning yourself is like a, is a good example of that, right? Like kids will burn their hand on a stove and then never touch a stove again. Yeah. But they, like I, I had a kid, I. He got a gi yesterday. He just signed up, and gi's a little big. I rolled it up, but he's not used to wearing how the geese fitted. And he also has a big head for his size, and so when he runs and stuff, his head kind of leans forward a bit. So he hasn't quite mastered his balance. And he must have just ran back and forth during drills to get to the end of the line every time. And every time he fell face first into the into the mat. It happened like ten times in a, in one class. And, like, it looked painful, and I laughed every time. <laughs> I feel slightly bad about that, but it was funny. And every time he was like, that hurt. And I was like, don't run like that. Like, I walk, maybe. And he would do it every time. Didn't care. Like, he knows what's going to happen, and he's like, I got no fear. You know, I'm, I'm seven. Like, I don't care. Like
1: That's funny. (laughs) Well, hopefully he grows into his head and it all balances out. Yeah, they all do. Most of them show up with
0: heads that are too big. They can't do half the movements because their heads won't let them move. And then, like, doing a teeter-totter on your back is, like, super easy. You know, you lift your legs up to the ceiling, you bring them to the ground, and then your head comes up. And, like, you're you're seated up. Like, it's totally fine. Four- to five-year-olds, their heads are too big. And they actually can't sit up because their head's way too much. They don't like. They try, and their head stays on the ground, and like, like, or like, pulls them back down. And it's, it's really funny to watch because that, like, they have to, their faces get beat red, and they have to like grab their head and like pull it up, and like trying to do a sit up, like. And then one day they show up and like they're just doing teeter totters, like it's nobody's business. They're like, I've been doing this for years, and it's like you're, you finally grew into your head. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, I think that like the key with. with kids is the curiousness is in part, I think intrinsically tied into playing games. Like there's like a, there's like a, a fun goal. It's super simple, but they have to like problem solve it at, at a non-complex level and you get it, make it too complex. And then it's just too much for them. Uh, some, not all of them, but a lot of them. And so like my, my assumption is that trying to push that movement to half guard from there is just too complex because not only do they have to do part of the, 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 the the elbow escape, they also have to turn and that's hard to do. You know, it's we we've taught the elbow escape before. And that's actually why I've done it is that this, the girl in particular, they didn't like it. She, she's actually decently good at the elbow escape, you know, provided you don't do a huge amount of resistance because she's little. Um, And so I was actually surprised why she didn't like this position. I was like, we do this all the time, like in the before times. So I'm not sure what's up. So I'm have to like noodle on like how to how to present that in a way that's much more fun. Apparently, um, and she doesn't doesn't make her cry.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, and you know, bear in mind there could be other stuff going on at home, or yeah, <clears throat> again, just being seven.
0: Like, well, yeah, I like she um, worry too much about it just yet. I, I I'm not too worried. She um, I could tell she she's been in the program for. Four, three four years and so um, i might know her pretty well and uh, uh i could tell she was getting a little uh a little tired you get that like they're kind of running on empty but they're going hard anyways you know kids will do that they'll yeah. like burn burn full steam full steam ahead but they have like no they're like burning on fumes and yep. so they're like exhausted but have energy at the same time and she was kind of like that and i'm not uh, tired i'm not tired i'm not tired crash yeah and so um yeah it's it's one of those yeah it, it can be tough um i like to have the kids every now and again i'll pair them up with other kids their size and that can sometimes cause problems um like i paired her and a boy up and they, they both seemed to be much more interested in like chatting with each other and like giggling and stuff and what seemed to be like seven. (laughs) Yeah. Like seven year old flirting is like, it's kind of what it reminded me of, you know, and it's like, I really don't care. Like they're, it's fun. Like they're having a good time, but then they like get a little rambunctious because they're both seven year olds, but I can't Mm -hmm. pair her up with the other kids there because they're twice her size. Cause we have like two seven year olds and then like two 11 year olds. And it's like, well, it's not going to work. And so I'm kind of, Stuck with that, and so I gotta like find a way to. And plus, the other kid that she was paired with was also a really rambunctious young boy, and so the guy kept, kid who kept falling over, and so they're like just running around, like throwing each other and grabbing their geese and like I'm just like, oh god, like I gotta figure something out. Any more little kids? Which is something yeah, good, you never. Good luck with that, man. Yeah, <laughs> and you never hear anyone say that because no one wants more <laughs> little kids. Like little, little kids are <laughs> the devil. Um, they're, they're, they're like really hard to deal with. <laughs> yep. That's what I'm saying. I have none, <laughs> par- none of the parents of the, the kids I teach are listening.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, if they are, I'm sure they're agreeing. Like, oh yeah, yeah, man, that's just up.
0: Any parents out there who are listening, like, don't forget that you pay me to get your kids exhausted before they come home. So that they sleep for you. So you're welcome. <laughs> um, and
1: that, and I, I,
0: I know that I deliver on this because I, I run them into the ground. Um it's the only way that I can handle seven of them at once. Um, but uh yeah, that has been interesting. Um I'm trying to trying to figure that out. Uh the pedagogy stuff is super interesting, but uh difficult but interesting. And yeah. uh leaves me exhausted at the end of the day trying to stay mentally engaged. I think people when they when they not even just train jujitsu, but when they do any kind of an endeavor, they're not fully mentally engaged. And it's understandable why they wouldn't be that's hard but i mean a lot of things do you really like it enough to stay mentally engaged no should you probably not um and uh so i think like what if you like really truly try and dedicate even half of your brain space to dedicating to something while you're doing it you get exhausted quickly yeah um
1: that's the best place to be, though, man. I mean, that's, yes. it's, to me, that's, that's the, the optimal running environment for the brain. Yeah. You know, just like maxed out but still capable. You have to focus 100%. Mm-hmm. Uh, dire consequences tend to help that a lot, whether it's, you know, jumping out of airplanes or driving fast or whatever, any, any type of the adrenaline sports. Uh, it forces you to be 100% mentally engaged in whatever it is you're doing. Yeah. Uh, and that's, that's a fun place to be.
0: No, I, I love it. It's, um,
1: yeah, but it doesn't work for everything. Of course.
0: No, it does Yeah. <clears throat> I, um, we were talking a week or two ago about, um, the, I think it was the book peak is what I read this in. Um, but there, there's been some studies done many, many studies actually in particular on violinists, but, uh, mostly it's done on musicians, um, about what separates like the good violinist, like high level, but not the best. And then the tier above them so right below the elite so elite very good and then good and these are all the people that are better than everyone else and go to like the elite schools for learning and um there was been studies that took those kids or adults and then juxtaposed them to like average people who play the violin so someone who didn't go to an elite school but like has played recreationally for years too and there were many differences but one of the main differences they found is that people who train like recreationally um, they would go they, this was singers too, but they would sing or play the violin. And when they were done, they'd feel energized and happy and like to like have their creative outlet. And the, the elite professionals, like the ones who put in way more hours than everyone else and like would go on to you know play at the Philharmonic and like would be considered the best or whatever. After their sessions, they were exhausted because yep. they were so present. It like, it, it was a, almost a chore yeah because they weren't it's, like
1: it's a discipline for sure yeah, yeah, and yeah like yeah. that
0: was the thing is like for them it wasn't like i'm just gonna i'm gonna do this and it's gonna make me feel better it's like i'm there to like do something specific and like i have to focus and but it's necessary i have to do it in order to be the best and um and i think that that um There are many things that separate elite level people from the average individual or even good people that are above average. And I think that's one of them.
1: Yeah, I, I think it's a great marker. Like, if, if after training jujitsu, if you're not mentally exhausted, then you weren't focused enough. Yeah. You know, even if you're not physically, if you're just doing, you know, a light flow roll and your partner's actually honoring that and you're both flow rolling and nobody's going nuts. Um, you should still be mentally exhausted because you're so present and watching what's going on, evaluating different opportunities, all of that, Mm -hmm. uh, staying mentally present, even if you're not rolling at a high speed.
0: Yeah. Uh, Yeah. You, um, you, you listened to the Joe Rogan Gordon Ryan podcast. Yes, I did. Yeah. So we can get a little bit meta and talk about a podcast on our podcast. That's right. Um, (laughs) so One of the things, uh, so if anyone has not heard this, go listen to Gordon Ryan and Joe Rogan talk. Um, I I think the jiu-jitsu world has been waiting for Gordon Ryan to talk to Joe Rogan for like five years. Um, And he finally did it and it delivered. People have at least been waiting since John Danaher did it. And he had that, that famous 15 minutes of slowly breaking down how Gordon Ryan had beat Cyborg like 10 minutes before he beat him. Yep. And he, he, like, would pause and all that kind of shit. And Joe Rogan's like, oh, that's what jiu-jitsu is. Like, the whole time he had, like, no idea. And Joe, Joe Rogan's like a high-level black belt. Like, he's not a mm-hmm. slough, you know. Um, anyway, so one of the things that Gordon Ryan said that I thought was, <coughs> reminds me of what we're talking about is he said that um, – I'm going to paraphrase, but he basically was like, what most gyms do or are doing – because Joe Rogan asked him, he's like, are people not like copying what you're doing? Like are they not trying to do what you're doing? Like how are you able to like just fuck everyone up? You're the the, the Daner Death Squad. And he's like, basically he's like, people are doing it, but they're doing a shitty job. And he's like, and the reason they're doing a shitty job is because they don't look at the details. Yeah. They're like, oh, I'm a- they're good at leg locks. I'm gonna do those Ashigarami entries and get go to leg locks. Or, oh, it looks like Gordon's trapping, you know, the did that what's trapped in the arm from the back. And so like, I'm going to do that. And then they do a shitty imitation and then they only get as good as that. And he's like, in order to get good, you have to like, not only study the positions and what, what the best people in the world are doing and how they work on the best people in the world. But then you have to try and innovate from there and get better and do more. Like that's the whole point. And You don't just do that physically. Like that's, that's the mental, that's the thing that the mental thing that it reminded me of is that like, you have to go in and be disciplined and be like, I can't just do whatever this is I'm trying to do because I want to get like, if I just want to work on half guard, I, I can't just like look at a picture of what half guard is supposed to be and then just try and get there and then oh i can you know like it's like yeah i can get to i I know half guard i can get there like no problem come here you know and then i'll just put my legs where they're supposed to go whatever that means it's like no you you have to like actively like figure it out and emulate what other people do um what most artists do let's say painters right um is they start off by painting other people's shit like they take the stuff that they like and then they paint it Mm -hmm. And then they experiment with different colors and maybe they try and mesh together different pieces and stuff. So like the Chrysler building in New York is like one of the most commonly painted things in, in, in the world. And people do all sorts of different interpretations of the Chrysler building. Um, and so they, they copy other people who do famous paintings of it. And then they have their own spin and then they can play around with different things. This is no different. Like that's how you get better. And then you, then you start to innovate and do your own new shit. Um, Picasso is a good example
1: works for music as well yeah if you're you're writing music you can copy someone that you like and then innovate from there
0: yeah and like Picasso was a great example like he um, he did uh, hundreds of thousands of paintings it might actually even be in the hundreds of thousands of paintings in his life like he painted like five paintings a day for his whole life he was like absurdly prolific with his painting. People know like 30 of them because they were the big famous ones, but he painted prolifically. And in his early years, it was all whatever was class whatever was common at the time. Not the weird shit that he does. Yeah. And then he started to break from the classical stuff that he learned because he was really good at it, but he started to break from that and do all the weird shit that he wanted to do because he innovated. And like all most all painters and musicians do that. You know, that's why we have cover bands. Like most rock bands start out as a cover band first and they go through the bar scene, playing top 40 hits. And then every now and again, they throw in an original and then they, you know, people hear that they're good at doing covers and they're like, I like the original a little bit too. Let's see what you got. Like you got to put in the work, you got to test your vocal ranges and your sound, all that kind of stuff. And jujitsu is no different. You got to try and do what other people do, but you you can't just try. You have to actively like push, the boundaries of what you're able to do against better and better people and then figure out why it works against elite level people and then make it better so that when they figure out how to defend against it, because they will, you can actually still beat it. And he's like, no one does that. He's like, that's why we're better. Partly is because people are like, "Ah, I can just do this and then it'll be fine. It's like, no.
1: Well, yeah. In order to effectively innovate, you need to understand thoroughly what it is you're innovating away from. What's, you know, what was the tradition or the original way of of doing something? Why was it that way? Then from that standpoint and that understanding, you can, you know, explore different directions, see if you can improve on it uh, or what have you. But if you're just, you know, these are the movements. So I'm going to do those and then I'm going to change it up just to be special or whatever. Um, it's not going to help. So yeah, you have to understand before you can innovate effectively at least.
0: Yeah. And, um, you know, like one of the one of the things that or desk when I did, and Gordon touched on this in the podcast, is uh in terms of innovation, is like they focused exclusively on Nogi.
1: Yep. Yeah, that was an interesting part of the podcast. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I like that. um I thought it was funny that he, he finally addressed <clears throat> the argument that no one seems to want to address. And that's that the long held line is that. In order to be good in nogi, you need to be good in the gi too. So, which is a weird argument because they're they're different. Um, but everyone shits on who, everyone who does shit on Gordon Ryan and then the other uh, members of the squad shit on them because they only do nogi. And it's like, well, which is it, like? They're, they're two separate arguments on one end. It's like, okay, well, if you want to be the best in nogi, you got to train in the gi, And they're like, fuck you. I'm not going to train in the gi, and I'm still going to beat you. And then they get mad because he only trains in the gi, And it's like, well, it's because I'm trying to beat you in nogi. Like that's <laughs> like your, your, your arguments invalid and you're getting upset. So you're complaining that they're doing too much of what they're tr- actually trying to do to win. It's like, I, I think you just need. It's,
1: it's just it's people <laughs> hanging on to the old way of doing things, yeah. right? Like back in the day, got mostly Brazilians that came up in the gi, uh, were good in the gi, sure. so they're gonna espouse that you need to learn the gi, uh, and they kind of stuck with that. When the reality is, um, you focus on what it is you want to get good at. You want to be good in the gi, train the gi. Yeah. You want to be good, no gi, don't worry. gi.
0: Yeah, and like. That's not to say that you can't become a <laughs> competent no gi while training in the gi, and that you, you can't do both, like or whatever. It's it just simply to say that if you want to get good at no gi, like I think enough people have now proven that the way to do that is to do a shit ton of no gi, right? Yeah. It, it that that doesn't seem to me to be like a radical statement. It's like I, I don't know how spider guard. Is supposed to help me, or you know, Keenan Cornelius's weird lapel guard is supposed to help me get better at Nogi. Now, maybe I I, I don't know, but it's also like there, there's just certain particular things that you do in Nogi that you don't do in the gi, and vice versa. And if you don't spend your time truly dedicated to figuring those nuances out, then you're gonna miss them. And this actually hits at something interesting that was touched upon a little bit in the podcast, but that I don't hear people talk about very much is that I think the reason that that argument persisted in part from people not wanting to let go of old standards, like old traditions, is that for a long time, the level of jujitsu has not been high enough to prove that theory wrong so it's like all, all the best guys for a long time trained in the gi and no gi and were world champions. So right, they can make right, the right. argument like I train in the gi and I'm a world champion no gi like I'm you know I'm Buchesha, I'm you know Andre Galvao. like you know see and then and then you have yeah. some have you know, some people come along and they're like taking all in Gordon in particular they're just taking everybody down and they're like no it's because I only train no gi like I'm trying to beat you without a gi. Like, that's my sole purpose. He's actually trying to do more than that. But like, when it comes to doing this, it's like, I'm putting the lie to your argument. And it's like, well, of course, like it's not a valid argument. It's just no one's been good enough to like, had a strong enough case against the argument to like prove it wrong. Um, Yeah. You know, it's a theory. It takes time. I mean, you
1: have to take the time to specialize in order to prove that because you got to dig deep. To, to find where the differences are gonna lie, right? Because yeah. there's so much overlap, Gi, no, no you key know, yeah. through blue and purple, you could almost consider them synonymous. But as you start branching out, you get your black belt, if you're competitive, et cetera, um, then the more specific your training can be, the more that's gonna help you in the competitive environment. Yeah. Uh, and with with the sport growing to the level where guys can actually make a living and support themselves, And also for there to be a few outliers, Gordon being the biggest one right now, that can get substantial success, which will attract more people. Ooh, I wanna be the next Gordon Ryan or whatever. So you get more people in, more people learning, more money in the sport, which all leads to more time to dedicate to perfecting that specific rule set, as well as enough people in the population doing it Mm that there's room for, or I should say, opportunity for new innovations, Yes. right? Um, the sport grew large enough to support a John Danaher, right? Which then allowed a Gordon Ryan and the DDS to exist and not have to take day jobs and only train three times a week or or whatever, right? Yeah. So the, the environment now supports that. and And once you have the opportunity to focus solely on that, then yeah, it's, it's, it's not a, a crazy statement to say, yeah, if you want to be the best in no gi, you better train no gi. No, yeah. Focus focus all your time on that. So yeah, yeah. no,
0: very, very true. I I always found it a very curious argument and um, like what, whenever I've heard it, I'm always like, that doesn't make a logical sense to me just like at all. Yeah. It's like, I, why? Uh, like you're wearing three, two to four extra pounds of fabric and a belt, um, which you can legally grab and do a lot of things with. Like there, mm-hmm. there's obviously differences. Like it isn't clear to me outside of general jujitsu movements. Cause they're, you know, and th- even then they're not the same, but there's a lot of like core movements that are similar cause it's still jujitsu, but it's like outside of doing those repetitively, like it isn't clear to me, like what, how the gi is really um, fundamentally beneficial to the nogi and vice versa. It's like, as you do one more than the other, you're going to discover the nuances of doing it that way. Just like with a rule set, like with different rule yeah. sets, like, um, you know you see a lot less uh like um like 50-50 guard in like ADCC because of how the rules break down compared mm-hmm. to like IBJJF in the gi right because heel hooks are allowed and yeah. it's like you know, as an as like a, a somewhat similar example it's like well you make heel hooks legal in the IBJJF and all of a sudden like no one's doing 50-50 guard or they're going to be doing it way differently you know you're not just going to be sitting there like waiting to see who can tilt the other person over or whatever it is you do in 50-50 guard, you know, because you're going to be going for heel hooks, right? right. And um, But as soon same as you... Same
1: concept for uh, for sub only.
0: Yeah, right? right. If you're not worried about points, you're going to roll different. Right, exactly. And so it's like, it makes sense that if you focus on sub only, like you go into a points tournament, you might perform a little bit differently because the points system is different and vice versa. And it's like, why would that not be the same if you have a gi or don't have a gi? It seems self-evident to me that it would be drastically different. Now, I'd, I'd be willing to stick my neck out and say that for a beginner in particular, sure, do both. I mean, you need as much of the normal motor functions required to do jiu as you can get. So, like...
1: Well, I, th- I think you spot on there in that this these distinctions as far as, uh, you know, training gi to be good in gi and all that is really for a more elite level... uh grappler whereas especially if you're just you know a hobby level player two three four days a week uh you got a regular life and a day job uh try it all Mm -hmm. you know it's it's absolutely worth learning everything it's going to expand your mind it's going to give you a better understanding of uh simple mechanics of two bodies interacting um and and having cloth to hold on to and being able to structure different chokes and, and things like that absolutely worth knowing it will expand your mind that's important uh, but at the most elite levels for the competitor uh train what you want to be good at
0: yeah this kind of reminds me of um I, can't, I think it was tom brady but i was i, was talk, I heard someone talk about uh nfl once and um this wasn't the argument that they make but i'm gonna make an argument and then i'm gonna be tom brady who breaks the argument apart (laughs) like could imagine that you're a high level collegiate football player maybe you're like an an all-league player or you're you're all-american or whatever and you're very athletically you know let's say gifted quote unquote right Um, And you're like, all you need is, you just need genetics to be good at football. Let's say that you're just genetically gifted, you built well, whatever, and you've worked decently hard to get there, but you're like, that's what you need. Everything else is fine. And then you have Tom Brady, who he's like, what separates all the people, the teams that win in the NFL isn't athletics, it's who studies harder. Like, that's the defining factor, because everyone at that level is so athletic. They put so much time in that there's like a chasm between whatever team Tom Brady plays on in the Browns every year because the Browns always lose. You know, like it's it's how hard they work. That's it. Because there's no real athletic difference. Everyone's big and strong and fast. Yep. And it's like now the NFL is huge, and so that argument doesn't need to be made because everyone knows this. Jiu is not that level, and so jiu-jitsu, I think in my mind is like that collegiate athlete who's saying like, well, I'm athletically, I, I have genetics, and so I can do really well and run everyone over, and that's all that's needed. And then Gordon Ryan comes along and is like, "Um, fuck you. Like, actually, that means shit. Everyone in my level is going to be really good because we're training hard, but we're also going to be smarter than you. And that's actually what it requires. Um, That that was really (laughs)
1: awesome. World champions in just about any athletics are the culmination um, of physical gifts and talent. And we said talent's overrated, but it is a thing. Yeah. Um, But it's overlap of that as well as the dedication to training, you know, and and we talked about in previous podcasts that, uh, you know, talent being overrated, it's the hard work, it's the proper practice and and discipline that make it happen. However, when everybody's doing that, well, then physical attributes are going to come to the front. So all the world-class players in, in whatever sport have to have both. Yes. You know, in the NFL, nobody's physically gifted because everybody's physically gifted. You yeah. know, if you weren't, you wouldn't be there. So, or like the Olympics, right? We're not talking about physical gifts because that's that's a given. You know, now it's about how did you train, how how much work did you put in, et cetera.
0: Yeah. Um, and there were times like in the Olympics where that wasn't the case. Like, uh, what's it, Dennis Fosbury? I think it's his first name, the Fosbury yeah. Flop. Like yeah. when he went to the Olympics, like. Everyone there was very athletic. They just did a weird high jump. Or he did a weird high jump. I take that back because he's the one who showed up and was like, I do a weird high jump and I'm going to beat you all. And so like there are times when people like essentially innovate and put the lie to that, to those kinds of things. Because they're like, hey, like you may all be very athletic, but you're not doing this very smart. I know a better way and I don't need to be as athletic as you to do it. Because he was obviously not unathletic, but um, it it was not clear to me that he showed up and was like just superior athletically and did a different high jump. From what I understand, he was just a kind of an average dude who just figured out that it's easier to jump backwards over the bar instead of go head first. And then he could just jump drastically higher and then just ran, you know, ran through everybody. And you see that kind of stuff, those innovations and... um, it's like, I, I think
1: that the significant or the, the the distinction now and then would be, uh, the speed at which information can travel, right? So yeah. the Fosbury flop was an innovation of technique and eventually everybody got to the point where they were doing that. And now it became the standard. Um, the same could be said for, uh, leg locking in jujitsu, right? Um, as Gordon points out, Danaher realized that that was the, the most common weakness in everybody's game. So he focused on that, you know, t- took to heart, don't ignore 50% of the body yep. and focused on leg locks. So his crew ran through everybody until they had a chance to catch up. Yep. And particularly now because information can flow so much faster, um, those advantages level out much quicker. Yep. So an innovation that may help you right now is going to be standard operating procedure next year. Yeah, oh yeah. Um so that I think that that brings that brings those those innovations to a more level playing field that then falls back on the amount of dedication and the quality of work that you put in.
0: Yeah, I'd actually be curious because you um you brought up the Dean Lister quote. I'd be curious to understand why, after Dean Lister ran through ADCC a couple of years in a row, people didn't in a, didn't like catch up to him because like he, uh, maybe this is a bad argument, but I'd be willing to to make the argument that he was sort of Gordon Ryan light, like he showed up was a Nogi specialist, and he looked everybody for a couple of years. Like that's I mean he, he kind of did that mm-hmm. twenty years ago or so. And he's got, like, one of the highest submission rates in the ADCC. Like, he was there to just finish people, and he did it. And no one did a fucking thing. And then 20 years later, they they still haven't really done much. Um, I'd be curious to know why. I wonder if it's because things were so new. Everyone was too entrenched. And at this point, jiu has grown enough that y- you can... And also, I don't have any recollection of, like, Dean you know, ripping everyone a new asshole and talking shit, like Gordon Ryan. I, mean, I think that's probably part of it too, is like, I think Gordon Ryan shows up and does similar things, uh, arguably better, but s- still similar. And then he's also just like calling everyone out for their mediocre professional performances. I, You know, I say mediocre even though I, I'm obviously not a professional athlete. It's, it's funny to me that he's like, you're a shitty black belt, such and such. It's like, I think that person won a world championship. Like, Yep. But he has a point. Like a lot of these, comparatively, I think you know. Um Yeah, it's. Uh, I'd be curious to dive into why that was the case, say for Dean Lister, because I mean he he went through and dominated ADCC for a long time, and, um, and again, it, I think flow of
1: information has a big yeah I a do big too. thing to yeah. do with that, like social media now. It affects you know every corner of our lives and and that's certainly one of them, you know. Yeah, no. you, you jump on BJJ fanatics, uh, learn whatever you want to learn. Yep. Question is, do you put the time in to train it correctly to do the deliberate practice and to make it part of your game?
0: Well, yeah, and that actually brings me to. Uh, um, I was very happy when uh, Gordon brought this up when uh, J- Joe Rogan asked Gordon Ryan if he would. Uh, he like, he was he asked a leading question. He was like, so uh, so does that mean if you were to ever have to ever fight one of the Gracie's, it'd be Hickson? And Gordon's like, no. Yeah. Like, immediately, he was like, no. Hodger's the best. He said, Hodger, yeah. And I was like, fuck it right. And then he gave some reasons, and then one of the reasons was, like, the exact reason that I gave when I talked about why I like Hodger more than Hixon. Um, is because he, of what he did and how he did it and the way he did it in all of his championships like he just went in and finished people and everyone knew what the fuck he was going to do and he did it anyways
1: it, you could argue that Hickson did the same thing but it was Valley to Doe so it was, it's it's a little bit different animal
0: yeah um, um, Gordon didn't go into this but I think that there's from what I understand there may be an argument to be had for the uh, the level of talent that Hickson faced versus the level of talent Hodger faced true true um, absolutely that's fair they're, they're you know uh I've seen some of the it's been a while so I don't remember any of the names, but some of the um the guys that he's fought their like overall fighting careers are not stellar and so there you know there's definitely people that he's he, he had fought that were at the time very big and ended up becoming average prospects at best and that doesn't obviously say anything bad about uh Hickson. um he obviously he's amazing.
1: Well, and there's also, I mean, just the legends of how many times behind the scenes he would fucking run through yeah. three-time, four-time world champions, you know? Oh, yeah. It's not... Nobody makes a big deal out of it. you just rolling with Hickson, but he's smashing people that have been winning gold. Yeah. You know, he's Hickson,
0: so... And see, <clears throat> I don't actually doubt that that occurred, and I also don't doubt that um, Hall's Gracie ran through hickson for a long time and that because he would do the same thing um the big and this is actually one of the reasons i like Marcelo garcia a lot too um and consider him one of the greatest of all time is for a similar reason for hodger is that like hodger showed up and choked everybody in the gi mostly from the mount he basically just Mounted and, like, cross-collar choked everybody. Like, did one of the simplest, most basic chokes that you learn in the first few months of the white belt. And then he just fucked everybody up. And then he left for a and came back the next year and then the next year. And then for, like, years, he just did the same damn thing. And no one did anything to stop it for years. And he's like, no I'm can just... defend. He's like, I'm just... He's like, I'm just, like, just going to mount you and collar choke you. And that's what's going to happen. And you can suck my dick like you know defend yourself if you want here we go yeah and and (laughs) Marcelo did the same thing you know he he was like i'm gonna open up this website it's called Marcelo garcia in action i'm gonna film all of my roles and all the classes that i teach no one has done this yet because he was like the first person to do this one of the first at least Mm. and he's at least the first big name everyone signed up for it everyone saw him rolling with you know world-class athletes doing his arm drag into the back take. And then what did he do? He went to ADCC and then it's like arm dragged and back took everyone. He's like, fucked everyone up. He's like, this is my game. I'm going to use my butterfly guard and I'm going to fuck you up. And like, you're not going to do anything about it. And he has a quote. I forget. I'm going to paraphrase because I forget it. But he's like, he basically was like, I don't mind showing everyone my game because then they're going to try and enter my game and I'm better at it than they are.
1: It's good philosophy. Right. And
0: it's like, that's kind of the point I'm trying to illustrate is that, um, and I think Gordon hit, hit it on the head, is that everyone tries to imitate and they do a shitty job. But you have yeah. these this the Hodger and you have the Marcelo Garcias and like, they were so much better than everyone else at what they did. That it didn't matter that everyone knew what they were going to do. No one could stop it because no one tried to stop it. They tried to emulate it. They didn't try and stop it. Yeah. No one showed they, up.
1: With, they didn't put in the same amount of work to get as good as he did. Yeah. So just, how how could they possibly? Yeah. Yeah. Like
0: no one, no one went in and was like, I'm gonna spend the next four years figuring out how to defend the cross-collar choke from the mount. And I'm gonna do it over and over again until I go to ADCC and I defend against Hodger. Yep. It's like, how do I defend against the best at this? And no one sat down and did that. They were like, I'm just going to, you know, not let him get me into mount. And it's like, cause that's always the advice. Like, how do you, how do you, what do you do here? It's like, don't get into mount. It's like, okay, well, <laughs> <laughs> what do
1: you do here? Don't roll with Hodger. That's how you stay safe.
0: Yeah. Like, <laughs> 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 you know, and was the, and one of the other thing I like about Hodger is that he did all of this while opening a gym, rolling with white and blue belts.
1: That's impressive. That's so impressive.
0: Yeah, and just yeah. obvious I'm sure that there were some purple, brown, and black belts around that he rolled with. I highly doubt it was only ever white and blues. But he was one of the first black belts in London, if I understand correctly. And there wasn't a lot of people in, in that area, and so it's like, I assume he had to like fly people out or roll with his dad, who was old then and is old now. So like, it wasn't like it was he was getting rolling with highly athletic younger guys. So he like had to figure all this out with blue belts. And so that's, that's special, honestly. Yeah. Well, it, I think it, I think that only works if you focus on the details. Yeah. I don't think you can just do an arm bar repeatedly against blue belts and then in five years it becomes world-class.
1: Well, it's actually, yeah. That's, so that's a, that's a good distinction between um, being committed to the details and being committed to winning. Right. So if you're only rolling with your peers or if you're rolling with actual lower belts, then you only need to achieve a certain level to run through everybody. But if you're committed to the details and perfecting the movement as much as it possibly can be, uh, regardless of how easy it is to execute on your training partner, uh, that's going to lead to
0: eventually world-class performance. Yeah, and hmm. Brian, our head instructor, always talked about this. Um, he His favorite... He's told me before that one of his favorite things is he actually he actually likes to roll with kids he prefers that partly just because the so body doesn't get beat up which makes sense because they're little but he uses it as a technique sharpening tool because of how you have to roll with kids you cannot roll hard with a seven-year-old they will die like you will just right. break limbs it's just that simple if you're an average sized adult you I'm just under 5'10 and right now I'm probably like 160 pounds. Um, if I use any kind of force on a seven-year-old, I'm going to like break a leg or a rib or like an eye socket. Like, I mean, I, there's, like it, it's gonna hurt. Like,
1: shoulder of justice. Yeah, like, I can't. I can't do the shoulder of
0: justice into a seven-year-old from from side control. Like I, they'll they'll become one-eyed. Like uh, they just won't have a side. Like and I'm, I don't even have that great of pressure, but they're little, so that's just what happens, you know. And so you have to do everything with technical precision. Um, but it's one thing to say I'm doing this with technical precision. It's another thing to like learn what that means. Yeah. You know, and the only way to learn what that means is. To like focus on one tiny detail at a time and then figure it out. And, um,
1: which means you first understand what those proper details are.
0: Yeah. Right. Exactly. Which takes a lot of
1: mental focus. And
0: for Brian, like he likes to do that with kiddos because it's so easy to work your open guard game, whatever your guard is, and sweep a kid. They have no fucking clue where to put their weight at all they don't know when they're going to get swept they don't know where to put their hands when they're getting swept they don't know that at every waking second that they breathe on the mat with you you can just choke them because they have no idea how to protect their <laughs> neck like it's just a crazy to me like I'll, I'll be doing what no matter what i'm doing like their necks are wide open at all times i could reasonably i could easily successfully cross collar choke someone a 7 year old on top of me in when they're mounted on me because they wouldn't be able to execute an armbar fast enough you know, like, yeah. so obviously I'm not going to do that and be like I know how to cross collar choke from the bottom of mountain like it's not a real thing, <laughs> but like, like they have no clue. So you have to guide them and then do things as lightly as you can. Um, I assume it's similar with for Hodger with blue belts because they're probably like there's a similar size ratio if they're tiny because Hodger's really big, but they're yeah. also it's like at, at his level like everyone's bad you know purple belts are bad for hodger unless they're like world-class purple belts and then they're probably just kind of bad yeah <laughs> and so like you know you get you get blue belts and it's like rolling with 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 13 year olds like they they want to go really hard because they have energy because they're adolescents but other than that it's like a joke and so how do you well, get and also
1: so here's something that i don't think you can emulate i'm just i'm going to air this here um when there's that kind of disparity in skill, you know, Hodra in a Blue Belt, there are certain things that he wouldn't be able to work on. Like, you know, multi-step setups yeah. where I know that, you know, that I know that, you know, mm-hmm. that I'm about to set this up. So you're going to counter with this. I'm going to counter. You're going to counter that counter, which is where I want you to go in the first place to get the guillotine or whatever. Yeah. Um, Cause they're not going to know to do even the first counter. So that leaves you with, the 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 more I'll say shallow techniques are more straightforward. You yeah. just set them up and do them rather than having to have multi steps. Um, and focused on having immaculate details in that execution. So you don't need to rely on them countering and setting all the stuff up. You just do it so perfectly that they can't counter it.
0: Well and I mean you look at Hodger's game and you know he, he's like the, the king of basics he just does all of the it's stuff. fundamentals
1: fundamentals, the fundamentals. Like, yeah
0: he, he does all the stuff that you would you know that or in every Pedro sour white to blue dvd all the you yeah. know or the Elio white to blue book like all that kind of stuff like it's Salo Ribeiro's you know white to blue whatever the book is called you know like all that stuff it's all the same stuff and it's like well that's what you can work on and you get good at it and if you're just better at it than everyone and my one, I don't know if it'd be a counter, but here's my thought about the, um, the setup process is if you can focus on the first step with somebody who's way less skilled and shut it down until they get the reaction that you want. So like if you do something and it's reasonable for you to expect that I will do something to counter it, because that's the only logical move for me to do someone who's, not as skilled may not understand that at a high level so you have to shut everything else down until they do it and then you maybe you lead them down the path maybe that's the way yeah Um, okay you know and i'm really only thinking that in my head because like as i think through grappling with kids like they do really weird things I i i tried to do a hip frame escape yesterday And one of my kids, instead of doing anything else, they literally log-rolled off of me and away from me. (laughs) Didn't see that coming. (laughs) I was like, (laughs) and I was like, the game was for me to escape from out underneath them. So them log-rolling, like, I literally was like, I just won because you, but, like, they do weird stuff. Yep. And so, like, half the time, like, when I frame into them, like, I have to, like, tell them, like, I need you to try and touch my head with your belly button, like, so that they drive into my frame so I can make sure my frame works. Yeah, And then when I remind them enough, they'll just do it naturally and then I can start working on other things. And so um, I said this mental image of like, Hodger in the bottom of Mount with like a blue belt, and he like frames the blue belt, and the blue belt just like rolls off of him. He's like I'm done with this shit. <laughs> your frame's too good, Hodger. I can't. I can't do this. I can't.
1: <laughs> you win. <laughs> tap to your frame pressure. <laughs> tap to your frame pressure.
0: Like I think you broke a rib. <laughs> but yeah, it's um, it was quite entertaining to uh to hear how quickly Gordon Ryan shut down how much he would. Not want to grapple with fixing.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, and I I fully acknowledge that. A, I don't know enough about either of those guys, and B, I am not currently good enough to even understand the depth of either their oh, knowledge. Dear. dear God, no. So, uh, yeah,
0: I am I'm making all of these from the- statements from an armchair, and I yeah. am not. I'm, <laughs> I'm not uh, going to apologize for that at all. So. yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah bo- both of these two would just would just wreck me probably for the rest of my life like i've yeah there's a very slim hope that i could ever be that good and it's like a, a tiny glimmer off in the distance like it's never going to happen and so but um relative well, to think, each other i think it's, it's it's fun to try and reason out who might be considered better and i i, I go yeah. with hodger personally
1: great mental exercise i think era also is a component as well you know, 1980s jiu-jitsu is different than 2000s jiu-jitsu is different than 2020 jiu-jitsu. Yeah. So as the sport grows and the knowledge base in general grows, you have to adapt to that. So if if Hickson would, would have, uh, you know, done what he did, but having, you know, say been born in 1990, what type of athlete would we see today, right? Because he would have access to that much more information, even if... Uh, yeah. or, but applied in the way that he did with his understanding and dedication and discipline, access to more information, access to better competitors, iron sharpens iron. Yeah,
0: um, I, that's tough because I think we would see Krohn, his son. Like, I think there's an argument to be made that we actually see that with his son. Um, now, obviously, Crone is different because he's, he's a different human. Yeah. Um, and his build is slightly different. I think he's a little bit shorter. Um, mm. But I mean, he was raised by his father to be a world champion, which he's since become, at least in the color belts. I believe he won it as a black belt, but I can't remember. And they have very similar games. Um, and so, I mean, you could, I think, make that argument. It's a shaky argument, but I think it still can be made. I, It's tough, yeah. Hodger... The level of talent that Hodger faced comparatively, I think, is greater. At least okay. when it comes to jujitsu. Yeah. You know, you mentioned the Valley Tudo issue. Like you're you know, he Hickson was definitely fighting um different types of martial artists at that point. And so and You got dudes trying to knock him out. I mean that, that yeah, changes like, things up like a bit. The, it's MMA, is, really. Yeah, there is, there is some differences there. And so um i'll concede to that and uh, most of my argument is is a jiu-jitsu based argument it's not not really an mma based argument or a, a, a no holds bar argument um because i don't think either hodger or hickson would should be considered the greatest in like from like an mma standpoint um you know i think there are plenty of other people that uh, could stack up you know um george st pierre is one that comes to mind for myself personally but um for how much he's dominated but this also is in my area of expertise and so we should have like wang and sean on to talk about that um again because they both really like the mma and would have much mm-hmm. more insight into into who, who should qualify for that um but yeah i think from just a pure jiu-jitsu standpoint i that's who the always the one who stuck out to me the most because of how he did what he did and who he did it with like who he was grappling Yeah. And how he did the same things. And it like, he didn't need to innovate. He was like, I could just do the same thing over again until you guys figure this out, you know? And, um,
1: and he, I've heard him in interviews, you know, he, Hodger did train all, you know, he got up on the leg locks when those hit the scene. It's not like he was opposed to learning new stuff. He just happened to be real good at getting the fundamentals in place and executing those. It's not like he
0: didn't train it. Yeah. It's like, I mean, you're, you're trying to win at the highest level and, you want to go with a what you're comfortable with, but you also so y- you can you can go a route that no one else goes, which is what the DDS d- Dan Hunter Death Squad did initially. You know they ran mm-hmm. through everyone for a few years because no one was really doing leg locks, and now they were actually just better at everyone than leg locks too. But they probably could have been half as good and still ran through everybody. Yeah. And just given their work, their work ethic, their, their system, their program that they did. Um, Gordon alluded to that with talking with Joe Rogan, but, um, something similar, you know, like I think they could have actually just done half the work and still beat everybody. They wanted to be so good that even when people emulate them, they still look shitty. And that's yep. kind of what's happening is people are like emulating their leg locks and they don't do as good of a job. It'll take years to get to their, to, to their level. And, um, and so I think for Hodger, it's like you learn all these new things and you want to know about him. But he's like, if no one can stop my my cross collar choke from the mount, like why? Ooh.
1: Well, and I think there's there's a bit of a almost a bragging right to that. And I have no idea if that was Hodger's motivation in any way. But to to take down a black belt with a quote unquote white belt move with a fundamental move like that. Yeah. Um, it, it says something different and, in my opinion, better than, like, you know, busting a real fast Imanari roll or something. Yeah. yeah, You know, it's like, no, I'm I'm going to come at you with week one white belt jiu at a perfected level and there's nothing you can do about it.
0: Yeah. I like that a lot. I do, too. I hate the term white belt move, not because of what we're talking about. I hate because it's assumed that there are moves that should only be used when you're not a white belt and that there's there can only be moves that are used when you're a white belt whereas like in every other sport that doesn't exist right like there's no beginner wrestling move right like every beginner wrestling move has been used to take someone down in the olympics of wrestling
1: Yeah, no, you're right. I think Preet was talking about that. Yeah, jab cross. It's it's the basic day one stuff, um, but you work on it for the rest of your career.
0: And you may learn, let's say, in wrestling, some things further down the road that are a little more advanced, Gramby style stuff or different kinds of throws. Like, um, I'm not sure what they teach you in the beginning of if you learn Greco-Roman wrestling first. I I I don't know if most wrestlers learn. they're like folk style wrestling or whatever it is for like high school and stuff in junior high and middle uh, elementary school before they learn Greco because Greco is only upper body. So it's all throws based. Mm-hmm. And so I can't imagine that day one, you walk into a Greco class with no wrestling experience. And they're like, let's teach you how to throw for five. Like you're going to need to arch your back all the way land on your, you're going to throw your buddy. Like that's like a dangerous throw to do. Like yeah. you need crash pads to make sure people don't like break bones and shit. So it's like, but you gotta learn that throw, otherwise you don't really do very good at Greco. You know, like it you just may need a little bit of you may need to learn a little bit of a few things first, but those things are still gonna work. Like we have all these like white belt moves that you know, now that I'm a blue belt or a purple belt or a black belt, like I don't need to use those anymore. And it's like I'd rather just do that for twenty years and get really fucking good at it.
1: Yeah, I I think fundamentals is a more accurate way to say yeah. it. However, when you say white belt moves, everybody knows what you're talking about. <laughs> I know. like I. I just, so, I, it's I, yeah, I it's an find... important clarification. I, I, I 100% give you that.
0: No, but, I, I want to yeah. find out, like, where that came from. Like, who, like, what gym or gyms decided, like, we're going to have, like, a section of, like, super shitty moves that only white belts do. And then we're going to hoard all the, quote, unquote, good moves for the upper belts who are serious. And, um and then when the white belts think they're hot shit as blue belts, we're just going to wreck them with all these good moves. <laughs> you know, and it's like, I, <laughs> it's
1: I've like, never personally experienced that. Yeah.
0: yeah. I, I feel like <laughs> that probably came about with the secret of culture to start when it comes to like sharing techniques through gyms. Yeah. It strikes absolutely. me as the same kind of thing as it's like, you know, I'm not going to yeah. show you the Aminari role. I'm just going to do it to you a bunch of times. Once you get your blue belt, just to punish you for thinking that you could even wear a blue belt. Like, you're still at the bottom, plebe. Like, let me you know, almost <laughs> let me almost break a joint, you know? Because, like, you do those kinds of moves, and if, like, someone doesn't know what they are, they're just going to get hurt. Yeah. Um, but anyways, I digress with that. Uh, <laughs> that. That that one always kind of rubbed me the wrong way. It's like, I I don't know why the, these need to be white belt moves. Like, I, I, I'm just as bad at most of them now. So... <laughs> you know i i I know blue belts who struggle with white belt moves and so maybe they should also be called blue belt moves
1: (laughs) (laughs) no i I think i think preets spot on with kind of the the jab cross metaphor yeah you know it's it's the fundamentals you're always going to use them you always want to sharpen them and keep them good there's some more advanced stuff later you know you're always doing a, a wheel kick you know, in the match, but you're always going to be working that jab and cross to set other things up. And I think there are definitely some, some positional things that work in that fashion.
0: No, no, very, very true. Um, what else did you take away from the, uh, from the podcast, What's something that stood out to you? Um, dude, Gordon's got some
1: gastro issues. Oh yeah. I didn't realize that dude. Poor guy. Holy cow. Yeah. Yeah. He's basically constantly nauseous. I don't know how if I could deal with that. I, I so hate being nauseous. <laughs> I'm just like that's it. I'm gonna sleep the rest of the day. But yep. you do what you got to do. Um, but yeah, dude, that sucks, especially for a guy that's trying to put on mass to not yeah. be able to to eat as much as you need to. Uh, super unfortunate. Jeez.
0: Yeah. He he mentioned that when he fought Bushesha, that walking around weight. Or like cut weight, Buchesha was like six three, two sixty or something like that.
1: Yeah, that's and he's a big like, dude,
0: <laughs> and he's like, I'm I'm two ten. He's like, fifty pounds is fifty pounds, and I'm like, yeah, to fucking Buchesha. Yeah. Like that's absurd to me. Like Bucecchia <laughs> looks big, but like even when he stood next to Hodger when they fought last a couple of years ago, like I knew Buchesha was bigger, but I didn't realize that like, it was so much bigger. Like he's a thick dude.
1: That's that's Francis Ngannou, big.
0: Yeah, I mean he and he's I mean, cut. He's not like soft. He's really fucking ripped. I yeah. could like, I've grappled with guys who are fifty pounds heavier, sixty pounds heavier, even. Uh, heck, I, I think I've grappled with guys that are about hundred pounds on me, and it sucks. Different. Yes, it, it, it does. Sucks. It sucks when they're te- like, it sucks when they're twenty pounds heavier especially if they're a little bit better, like just naturally have this better technique. Um, you know, it, it's, uh, it sucks. I couldn't imagine going up against someone who's also in consideration for at least the greatest of his generation. Like, but has just destroyed everyone for years. Yeah. And then to walk into that, given up 50 pounds. It's like, <laughs> <laughs> it's like okay, good luck. <laughs>
1: Well,
0: are you the best or Are you the best? Let's do this. <laughs> and while you're nauseous constantly, and he he mentioned that he doesn't eat during competition days because he doesn't want to deal with the nausea. Yeah. In part. And so it's like you haven't eaten all day. And you're nauseous constantly. And you have fifty you it up fifty pounds on like a ten time world champion. Fuck.
1: From a guy that uh, trains every day, three six five. Yeah. With with a, an actual legitimate genius uh coaching your career. Yeah, give it a shot. <laughs> right. <laughs> if anybody's yeah. going to do it, I mean that's you know, that's that's kind of the uh the perfect storm in uh in the DDS and particularly with Gordon. I mean,
0: No very, very true and um that actually was a big thing I took is that uh they trained every day.
1: Yeah. Well it's like, like so what are, what are the components to absolute world-class performance in any sport, right? There's gonna be some, some sort of physical gifts or you're at least mildly athletic, uh, that has to be there. Um, the discipline and dedication, we talked about that, that has to be there. The workload, that has to be there. And there's some nuance there depending on your body type, how much you can recover or whatever, but DDS, they go every single day. And then there's also coaching right? The best athletes, pro athletes always have amazing coaches as well. Um, And the DDS has all of those things.
0: And they're the only ones with half of those. Most of the other world champions don't have coaches. They own their own gyms.
1: Right. Yeah, you got got me thinking, Like, what are the other big gyms? Like Atos?
0: Yeah. Andre Gabal is who runs that, and he is not his own coach. I mean, he's don't coach like, yeah, yeah. yeah. They don't train full time. So the vast majority of high level jujitsu athletes do camps before ADCC and the IBJJS. Like I think a lot of them probably do naturally, but then they take a few months off. They, they relax, they let themselves go and recover. Um, the athletic part, I think all of them have and, uh, but I think that's a, that, I think that's a byproduct of the work more so than like some of them are going to be more naturally gifted. Like, like you know, as an example, not everyone who's 6'3 can hold weight like Bouchesha. Right. You know, or that, that kind of thing. Or not everyone is like Dean Lister in the way he's built. Like he's kind of a short guy, but he's like he can hold weight really well. He's thick. He's got really long arms and he's really strong. Um, he's got natural. He's built his grips up and it, like all of his strength. He didn't, it wasn't just like born with gorilla arms, and they didn't need to do anything. But like he, some of those physical gifts are are natural. But a lot of the athleticism is because they're moving around a lot.
1: Well, I think th- I think there's also a point of of, uh, of natural selection, if you will. Like yes. all the people that we're looking at, considering, and talking about, if. Have- basically already been filtered out because they figured out they enjoy doing jiu-jitsu and they do it a lot so that their their body's going to adapt i'm talking more general population you know an average person who's not athletic even if they put in all the work you know like they'll definitely get better but they're not going to reach world class
0: yeah Um, no very true yeah, yeah there's injuries and stuff as well like yeah being lucky with injury prevention or just having um you can train, I think, a little bit like ligament flexibility and stuff like that, but it's sometimes you're just elastic. Yeah,
1: that's yeah.
0: just the way it that your that's just the way that your joints function. And so, yeah. you know, like you as an example, like your hips in particular are super flexible. Yep, um, you have a lot of a ro- ro- lot of ro- rotation or a lot of range in your with your hip capsules, and so yep. that allows you to do crazy things even without stretching a lot. Um, yep. Whereas I don't have that, you know, like as an example, but, um, yeah, they're the only ones that have all four. Um, and that's telling that isn't surprising to me. Like we we've talked a lot, like you mentioned about performance the last few weeks in particular, and they basically do what every other profession does for high performers. That's all they're doing. They're not doing anything special. Like that, that's the funny thing to me is that everyone's like, Oh my God, the Dan, our desk squad, like, you know they're they're killing everyone, and Gordon talked on the podcast about how what he actually wants is for the Death Squad to literally win all of the EDC, every bracket. Yep. And like that would be fucking crazy, but everyone's like, oh my god, they they may do this, like whatever. They're if you were to take what they're doing and you were to put it into football or basketball or a violin playing or anything else. They would be doing what everyone else already does, at
1: the world class like, level. Yeah, at the world class
0: level, like they would just be <clears throat> doing what everyone else does. And what everyone in football does is exactly what they do. They just applicable to football.
1: Well, I, I mean, none of this is new. Basically, if, if yeah. you think of it in in, uh, in an adaptive sense, really, it's it's an evolution. Um, the you know the four components that you mentioned. Uh, are basically necessary. So at some point, everybody's going to get those components together. You're going to find athletic people. You're going to be dedicated and disciplined. You're going to put the work in. You're going to have a great coach. That holds true across the board for for any endeavor, really. So when all of those come together, it naturally brings the, you know, what is the world-class level up. And from there, you can only refine even more, you know, that you can have a great coach and then you can have a John Danaher, yep. you know, there's black belts and there's back belts and there's coaches and then there's Danaher. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's that super highly, you know, uncommon amongst uncommon, right? Yeah. Um, Gordon is, uh, I think admittedly, he's quite physically gifted, right? He can get big if he wants to. So he's definitely got that going for him. He is putting the time in and he's doing the, the correct work. He's, he's got it all going. So it's just natural byproducts that he's going to raise to the top. Anybody else that fulfills all of those criteria and does the same work uh, is going to be at that level. And then you get into the super fine minutia of you know who's actually better and these, these super mm-hmm. fine points that I think can be a bit distracting from the lessons that you can get out of the conversation in general. Meaning uh, if you are looking to improve your life or someone else's life, like if you're coaching them, um, to, to maximize that to the absolute optimal performance that that individual can do, then you need those four components. When those four components are in place and everybody's doing all the stuff right, then you're going to see some individual differences. You know, maybe Gordon just learned to think faster. Maybe Gordon's got a better mental model. Um, maybe Danaher just really is the secret sauce to to give the edge to his guys, or maybe not you know, maybe, maybe another school, maybe Daisy fresh is coming up and, and something magical is going to happen there. Who knows? But I think to, to be allowed on the stage of world-class athletes in that way, uh, you got to have those four components. And then yeah. once you do, then, then you get the, the interesting little individual differences that really it's, it's, you know, in the grand scheme, it's splitting hairs, you know, it's like, yeah, every single person at this high level competition is a, fucking killer make no mistake you know we're we're splitting hairs about who's better than who they're all fucking amazing so let's yeah. not oh, yeah. forget that um and then we can just have fun trying to guess who's gonna be the best or whatever
0: yeah i'm what i'm curious to see is the next like five to ten years yeah how jiu-jitsu changes and I don't mean like like Gordon mentioned on the podcast that he thinks that the Gi will be obsolete in a few years. Um, maybe. I'm more thinking of who's going to be at the top. And my prediction is that smaller schools like, say, Daisy Fresh. I actually haven't watched. L- let's do a podcast in a, in a week or two um, on Daisy Fresh. They, they've released, I think, the whole season. Um, okay. I've only like seen it, clips, but yeah, I can check that out for sure. There's like five of them on YouTube for free, five or six. I think they're slowly releasing them for free on YouTube. But I think if you sign up for Flow Grappling or something, you can watch them all. And okay. So I might, I might just do that once I watch them. I'd love to like talk and it just it, see what they're doing, um, and kind of talk about it. But my my prediction is that what we're going to see is smaller programs like that who are like absurdly in maybe in their case, unhealthily dedicated to getting better like this are going to start to take over the bigger programs, the Gracie Bajas and the Atos and the, and the like. Um, I can see that. Yeah. I think that uh, and it'll take a little bit of time, but that at some point those smaller groups or the newer generation of students who are trying these things are going to realize and put in enough work over enough time to overtake those at the top. Um, because we're talking, like you said, we're talking about like fractions of differences. And so you have all these world-class athletes at Atos who all have different games and don't really study the same things, but intake time off and and do whatever and do their and do their, the things the way that they do. But they've been doing this for so long that they are very good. And so it takes an uncommon person to do uncommon things, as you said, and to do them just enough differently and better to win right but that's that's hard like it's not like you can just show up but i think what we'll see is we'll see a bunch of groups of small schools who put in the work for the next five to ten years and then all of a sudden they just explode onto the scene so to speak and we're just going to get overrun with these small full-time schools they have one coach five to ten fifteen players practitioners who 24-7, twenty four seven they train that's all they do that's their job they just they yeah. just train sixty hours a week and it'll take them six years to get where they need to be, but they're going to overtake all these older established schools because they put in the work and they focused enough um and then it'll look like they just overtook them out of nowhere when reality has been building for years
1: yeah um, no it takes ten years to build an overnight success
0: yeah right yeah. right exactly yeah yeah and um that that that's that that's my uh my prediction is that that'll happen. Um, something to that effect.
1: Yeah, no, that totally makes
0: sense. It's,
1: and I think another component is uh, basically what you touched on it's that obsession. That'd be the fifth component. Um, yeah. It's the willingness to, to make this the only priority in your life. And, well, you know, what about family? What about this? What about that? Like, yeah, it, I mean, do those things if you want to do those things. But if you want to be the best, the The simple law of adaptation requires, a hundred percent obsession on that, yeah. you know. That's just how that. I mean, that, that was fascinating to hear that uh, John Danaher doesn't do anything but martial arts. Meaning, uh, if he's not in coaching, he's going home and watching tapes. Yeah. You know that that's his entertainment. He really is just obsessed with his athletes, uh, yeah. and it shows. You know.
0: Yeah. I- That's, you know, we've mentioned this a little bit before, but that's what people, people who are successful don't actually talk enough about this. And that actually, I I think is a problem. I think that I get why they don't. It's not attractive to hear a success story talk about how hard it was. Yeah. It doesn't sell as many books. No, like no one wants to hear what you had to go through in order to um, be get where you were like maybe if it's a um a rebound story like everyone loves the story about robert downey jr he rose he became a star and then he got addicted to drugs and then he you know fell away and then he came back um you know mickey rourke is the same way you know he, he went through a bunch he was a great villain in the 80s and then he hit drugs and then disappeared for 25 years and then triumphantly came back like everyone likes the comeback story right And that has difficulty in it, but no one gives a fuck about how hard Bill Gates's life was when he first started Microsoft and how hard Steve Jobs worked. You Mm -hmm. know, like there's like three Steve Jobs movies in the last like 10 years, all with different actors and all did a great job. But I don't think any of those movies actually go over how much work he put in to make Apple work. They talk about how he's kind of an asshole and he's a little obsessed. So they get into it a little bit, but like, no one talks about like, you know, you're probably going to get divorced. You know, you're, pro- you're going to put I, in 80 hours a week.
1: Yeah, it's, it's the, the guys that are willing to sleep under their desk at work so they can get back yeah. at it in the morning. And I think here's another important distinction is that they don't do it because they think they should. Right. So like Silicon Valley right now that, you know, that like the startup atmosphere is, you know, a hundred hour weeks and all that rah, rah, that's what we got to do. It's one thing to do it because that's the the cultural expectation. It's another thing to do it no matter what, because that is your internal pull. You know, everybody goes home at five. You're the one that stays there. And, mm-hmm. and puts in the extra time. Versus, you know, you're putting in overtime, but everybody is, and you don't want to look bad. It'll look like you're going home early, even though you're not, but like, eh. Um, and that's one way to get everybody to work. But if you have that internal motivation to be that obsessed, um, and like, you know, Elon slept under his desk type of thing. You know, he has that internal motivation to build the things that he's building. Versus a social pressure. I think that's a key as well. And uh, similar to curiosity, yeah. I don't know that that can be taught. Um, you, can, you can convince someone that that's what they need to do, and they'll do it for social pressure, and that can have a benefit. I'm not saying that, that uh, that's a waste of time or anything like that. Um, it's, you know, it's a sacrifice, so you got to make that decision, but it's not necessarily a waste of time. But there's this, an important difference between the guys that do it intrinsically. Yeah. You don't need to be told to do that. You got to chase them out with a stick because they're not going home. They're still putting in work. Um, I, I think that's that's a, a a component that will eventually become required. You know, as the the evolution or the adaptation process, uh, particularly with jujitsu, as that grows, if you want to be competitive, you will have to have that kind of personality. You know, yes. like like Dana does naturally.
0: Um, yeah, no, you can't I, fake I, it. That I completely agree with. And and that's where we're going to see innovation. I think in the sport is that right now, because that isn't really the case. And Gordon talks about this. He actually talks about this all the time on his Instagram and stuff. Um, he like rails against other competitors for what we're talking about. They don't put in the work and you're going to see people putting in the work and it's going to change how the game is. The sport is played because they're going to find the nuances that no one else spends time on. Like, there's a reason, you know, we talk about pre Mickelson, there's a reason that people listen to him and he, what he says resonates, because he's the only one s- spending hours upon hours upon hours upon hours over years going over one thing. Like he's the only one who does it. I saw, a competition, yeah. I saw competition footage of him in like um, 2016, and uh, he ended up losing. It was like um, the uh, Estonian National Championships or something. Some kind of a Estonian competition. But it, what it actually looked like to me he was doing, because he spent most of his time on the ground defending, doing pre-shit
1: mm-hmm.
0: five, six years ago, before no one knew who he was then. Literally nobody. He hadn't even been on globe, BGJ Globetrotters. Like, no one knew who he was. And it looked to me like he went into the competition with the sole purpose of seeing what a high-level black belt, at least in his area, could do to him. He didn't look like he was at all interested in attacking. He just defended and moved around. Stone-faced. It didn't seem like he was working super hard. It struck me as if he was just there for research. That if sounds
1: it, right. <laughs> from, yeah, that, from the bits I've seen of him, that sounds yeah. like exactly what and he it's would
0: like. do. And I think that that's what we're going to start to see with these small schools that, you know, like say, like Daisy Fresh is a good example where they're putting in so much time trying to not only emulate, but innovate and um, deliberately get better that we're going to see these massive changes in the game. And um, as the nuances of fundamentals get so nuanced, they get, they get pushed to such an degree that they're going to be doing shit that no one's even prepared for. Um, or they're going to bring back stuff that no one even thought to do, and is now going to be the new thing. You know, um, it'll it'll be. I'm, I'm really excited for that because I think it's going to, like you said, it's going to dramatically change how jujitsu is played. The problem is that it won't happen if there isn't money. Yep. It, it just I think won't.
1: we're in a good spot, though, man. I think I think you know, as Gordon was saying, that John Donahue was saying that we're probably a couple of years away from jujitsu really kind of turning the corner you know we've seen it a little bit it's getting bigger yeah the the production value is getting better people are understanding what's happening more and more so if we can make a shift from the people that understand the grappling that happens in the ufc they have enough grasp on that they can transition over to you know a gi grappling and watch that without ever actually training grappling themselves, but just have enough understanding in general from watching MMA fights to follow along and to be yep. able to appreciate it. And then once, once you can appreciate it, then it's, it's awesome. You know, it's super exciting. And, uh, I think the crowds will grow from there. So I, I think we're close to that point.
0: I hope so. It'd be nice to, um, To get more money into the sport and uh, to bring more recognition into it, you know, to be able to um, to have more of the masses gravitate towards it. Because it's just going to be good for everybody, you know. Yeah. Um, I don't have any.
1: (laughs) I was surprised to hear that Gordon's making as much as he is off his DVDs.
0: Wow. um, So he.
1: One to two million a year.
0: He said multiple millions.
1: Oh, I just said one to two, whatever. Oh, so,
0: to- no, so I think total is um, multiple because he's got much oh, other adventures. Yeah. He made an Instagram post like a couple, two days ago or something. Apparently, in April, he hit a million dollars in income in April. Wow! In one yep. month. In one fucking it, month. Yeah, that's good for absurd. him and good for the sport. You know. Yep. Um, speaking of good for the sport, I'm so glad that he finally. Gordon finally came out and was like all the shit talking that I do is theatrical yeah i knew, I figured it was it it always kind of struck me as like if, if that's what he you know he was just trying to like hype things up um he could have just been a huge douche and just that's just how his personality I didn't get that impression but um it was it was nice for him to finally be like like I'm doing this." so I get paid more. And so the other, the other person gets paid more and yeah. people take it way too seriously. <clears throat> yep. And, it, it's well, and like, he
1: mentioned that, you know, again, back to Danaher, you know, sat him down when he was 17 and said, you know, you, gotta, you obviously you have to do well, but you also need to be memorable. Yeah. Um, and, and you need to be able to market yourself. Yeah. Uh, and he, he definitely took that to heart.
0: You no, know, very true. And he turned into a, in they call it a heel in, uh, Pro wrestling, yep. It's like, like the bad guy in the storyline, yep. um Brian, our instructor, is actually a, a heel. Yeah, <laughs> when he when he perf- when he performs in, in his pro wrestling, which is funny because
1: he's so laid it, back. As <laughs> like anyone never guess. who knows,
0: it, yeah, anyone who knows him in like non wrestling life, he's just like a laid back. Like he gives zero fucks about anything. He just yep. he's just like whatever. Just do whatever you want. And then I found out that he's this hilarious heel who. Goes on hot takes all the time.
1: <laughs> <Just> like,
0: <laughs> it's like at one eighty. Yep. <laughs> but yeah, it, it was it was funny to hear Gordon Ryan be like, "Yeah, I just like this is all a joke to me. I just I do it. It's like a marketing thing." And then um, you know you see Andre Galvao get super upset and flip him off and then get smacked for it. It's like um, super hilarious.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That was a little surprising. I mean, he popped him in the chops pretty good. It was a a legitimate bitch slap. You could hear it.
0: Oh, yeah. (laughs) No, it, uh, I, when I saw that, I was like, holy shit, like his, Audrey's reactions were so weird to me. He was like, I, cause I saw him flip him off when I watched it live and I was like, okay, like, did he just flip Gordon Ryan off? 'Cause it, they passed through it. Like he he like walked by, it was like off on the side. It wasn't like a close-up or anything. It was yeah, by yeah. the mat. And then I saw him like flip Gordon Ryan off and I was like, did that actually just happen? Didn't think anything of it. Like that was kind of weird, you know? And cause Gordon Ryan laughed and I was like, I must have missed something. And I think Sean sent me something later on that night, and he like an Instagram video of of their fight. And I was like, oh fuck, he really did. And then I see Andre Gaval push him. And then Gordon just like wham! Like didn't even wait, just smacked him in the face. Yep. And it's like, it's like, yeah, Sean always tells me he's like, um, you know, if you, there's gonna be a fight it's better to be the aggressor something to that effect that's like he's probably phrased it differently than that but the gist of it is like the best defense is to just be offensive first like you don't want to be the 100%. one tra- yeah. trying to defend someone who hits he's like um he's like especially if someone like cocks their arm behind their body and they try and hide it because then you you know they're trying you know you're they're going to hit you they're hiding their hand so you mm-hmm. you can't see it because they're a kid and they think that if you can't see <laughs> their hand it doesn't exist i don't know and then they throw a sucker punch and it's like you just hit them and then Gordon Ryan, like he gets pushed, he's like, "Okay, fuck it! Like I'm gonna hit you! Like yep. I'm not gonna wait around for another hit." You know? Um, well, dude,
1: strategically, that's that's uh, maybe the best move there is. Like, because I mean, guys puff up, you know, it happens. You are talking shit, you are pushing each other, and whatever. Um, you're not quite in a fight yet, right? Yeah. It might cool down. Might get, yeah. You never know. Um, but if you give someone a good slap, one of two things will happen. Either they'll they won't do shit, like Galvao. And you're like, okay, he didn't want to fight, so we're not fighting. Or you it's on yeah. and you got yourself ready. You made the first move. And if it's, if it's go time, you're you know, ready to do what you got to do. Um, yeah. That's it. That is a solid move. So uh, plus one for the bitch slap. Yeah.
0: <laughs> and on that politically incorrect note, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> this will be our last uh. podcast before we get canceled <laughs> by the internet. <laughs> Uh, we thank you all for listening but uh, Google and Amazon has now removed the podcast because of that
1: <laughs> right <laughs> they've cancelled us and we're not even done recording yet right say, yeah department of thought crime
0: at least you didn't say pimp slap which I think is probably worse
1: uh, that's, I think that's, that's like the backhand no, the front the hand backhand. you got the bitch slap <laughs> the you come from the back That's yeah. that's a different deal
0: my Completely bad. different
1: strategy, yeah.
0: <laughs> See, the, the nuances of the slap are not known to me.
1: You just, you got to okay. study. You got to put some time in, Bo. Come on. A,
0: <laughs>
1: deliberate <I> did, practice.
0: And <laughs> you just slap more people, is That's what right. you're saying. Like, there are a lot of people when I go to the grocery store that uh, piss me off. So I'll, uh, you're going to start hearing reports of some bald guy just slapping the shit out of people in the produce <laughs> section. Yeah. <It's like, laughs> Why did you sir, why did you slap that guy? He fucking touch my apple. <laughs> so I gave him the pimp hand.
1: That's right. <laughs>
0: oh. <laughs> oh God. Okay. We should All end right. this before we uh, before before we We're actually get canceled. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> did you have any closing thoughts about the what I think might be one of the best podcasts I've heard since Jordan Peterson was last on Joe Rogan. So um, yeah. Closing thought would just
1: be, go check it out. If, if you're a jujitsu yeah. fan, which obviously you are, if you've been listening for this whole podcast, you know, definitely go check that one out. Um, I signed up for Spotify specifically for that. That was a tipping <laughs> point for me. Yeah. <laughs> I was, I wasn't going to follow Rogan cause I don't want to deal with commercials and stuff, but I was like,
0: ah, I got to catch this one. Yeah. Um, it, I was so. in Chelan on va- like a, a weekend away this weekend <clears throat> and I got a text or an Instagram from someone in our jujitsu group. And it was like five in the morning when I got it, because I woke up early and I immediately downloaded Spotify and spent the whole time before my girlfriend woke up um listening to this podcast. Thank like I, without any internet, I had to like use data to like figure out how to download Spotify and like i'm like creating accounts and do all this shit at five in the morning on vacation and i was like it's worth it to listen to the two of them talk and it was totally worth it now i'm probably going to remove spotify and delete my account but um, i will likely do the same i there was
1: at one point they snuck in a couple of commercials just right smack dab in the middle oh fuck Uh, I damn near chuck my phone out the car. I hate that so much, but you know I bared through. I
0: I rewinded because I didn't. I thought I'd miss part of it because of the commercials, and it plays the commercials again when you do that.
1: Oh yeah, Dude, it's not Spotify's like YouTube. Nasty yeah. about that. Yeah. It's not like
0: YouTube where you can rewind and you you already saw the commercial. It goes away. You have to listen to the fucking thing again. Yep, yep. And so I had to listen to them twice. Bullshit.
1: <laughs> anyway, still worth it. Check it out, yeah. ladies and gentlemen.
0: Check it out. Uh, fuck you, Spotify!
1: <laughs> there goes our sponsorships. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Do we actually have our? I believe we are on available on <laughs> are? Spotify. Yeah. So download Spotify and check us out on Spotify. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> Thank you all for uh, listening to this. We hope you have a good rest of the morning, the afternoon, or the evening. <laughs> See ya.
1: <laughs> Take care, everybody.